coming um, and welcome to Cafe Culture. Cafe Culture is an ongoing programme of events, of informal events in the evening, where we get to hear about the research that's happening in SELTS in the School of European Languages and Cultures at UCL, and also how it links up with other research and non-academic work happening outside UCL. So if you enjoy tonight, please have a look at our programme and, and, and the upcoming events. The next event is on the 27th of May, and it's a um, slightly different format from what we've used so far. It's a games evening, so it's going to be, um, it's called Games at the Grant. It's taking place in the Grant Museum of Zoology. Um, and UCL and SELPS researchers will be making games out of their research for you to go and play with them and find out more about their research um, and what they do in that way. So this evening, um, we're going to be hearing about tracing origins, family history and roots. And um, we really want you to enjoy the evening, take part, participate with questions, and you'll be given other opportunities to participate over the course of the evening and chat informally to our, our guests and our speakers. Please um, eat and drink and finish everything up. Um, we don't want to take anything home. Um, we have tablecloths as well. You'll see with felt tips around the room to um, leave us any feedback on the, on the, on the event, on the, any thoughts that are inspired by the event. Um, so we'd love to hear your thoughts, either by the tablecloth or by our blog, which is um, you can find at cafeculturecl.wordpress.com. It's another way of getting in touch with us, letting us um, know um, your, your thoughts on the event. And also follow us on Twitter, so do get involved with us, please, and we'd really like you to. I'm going to pass over now to Francois Guinée, who's going to be the chair for, for the evening. We might need a slightly higher microphone from you. <laughs> just slightly, just slightly. <coughs> okay, that's this classical situation, starting with the wrong side. Slightly worried by the by the title of the event series because it's cafe, which is very French, and then it's is it culture and then series or is it cafe culture series? I'm 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 not sure about that, but <coughs> cafe culture. So I have to switch from from French to English in one even not a sentence, uh, but never mind. So so we have three speakers today. <coughs> um, uh, who will share with us uh, their insights into questions of uh, how we uh, contextualize origin. <coughs> Sorry, they will speak about about uh, roots and origins and rivers. We will speak about maps. We will speak about locating our backgrounds in space. Uh, so something which is very uh, very uh, topical. Everybody likes to do that. Uh, we have two speakers from the UCL French department. Uh, which are Jane Gilbert and Catherine Ibbett. Uh, and we have an uh, um, archivist, genealogist, historian uh, who comes from outside UCL to enrich and live in our, uh, uh, in our uh, discussion. Uh, um, my function is to watch the watch uh, uh, because uh, we have a very strict schedule. And uh, I will very, very briefly say uh, which uh, expertises you can expect. Uh, so Jane Gilbert uh, is a specialist in uh, medieval uh, European culture with a very strong emphasis on French medieval culture. She's at present involved in a big, big research project on French literature from outside France. So ex-territorial French culture or French francophone uh, literary culture. Um, and is, as I said, based in the uh, UCF French department. Catherine Nibbert ha has a background, has an expertise in uh, the history of political philosophy and uh, of theories of political action and, interestingly enough, works on the history of um, affect or emotion. So, history of emotions, which is also very, very fashionable uh, at uh, the moment. <coughs> so, so, both bring a lot uh, to our table. Nick Barrett, historian, archivist, genealogist, uh, has cooperated with uh, the BBC series, uh, Who Do You Think You Are?, but is a uh, very well-known specialist in uh, genealogy, uh, family history, local history, oral history, so he's 
he's doing uh, uh, history um, uh, on the ground, so to speak, and or links uh, the history uh, from below with the larger perspectives. I'm delighted to have these three uh, speakers here to speak to you, and uh, I invite, uh, first we go in chronological order, so we will start with Janet Jay, <coughs> and go over to Catherine and then to Nick, uh, and each has 10 minutes, which means in academic terms, 30 to 40 minutes, uh, <laughs> and uh, then we will, uh, let me look at the, then we will have a short question and answer period, uh, where I will invite you to uh, comment on the, on the talks, uh, so no, no questions in between, uh, and uh, uh, then we will have a mingling period where we will draw things on the tarot cloth and get drunk. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, I didn't say that. Uh, so, uh, Jane, the floor is yours. So, um, I hope you've had a chance to look at the maps that I uh, put on the tables. Um, it's going to take me a while to get used to this microphone. I tend to walk around. So I'll um, and uh, any answers? Uh, what, what is the compass point that's at the top of the map? East. East. Yeah. Okay. So, thank you. Yes, east. Otherwise, this is going to be very dull. Right? <laughs> <laughs> um, east, and this is, this is why we orient ourselves, or we orientate ourselves, is because traditionally, uh, east is the top uh, compass point. Okay. Uh, what's at the centre? It's not the same on all the maps. <laughs> Jerusalem, or most of them. Yes, one of them has Delos and the Cyclades, which were the, the navel of the world for the ancient peoples, but most of Jerusalem. Yeah, exactly. Um, what continents can we see? Where? Europe and Africa? Europe and Africa, yes. Uh, on which one of them are backwards, sorry? Asia. Asia, yes, exactly. Of which Asia is the big one at the top. Half of the known world was Asia, and then Europe and Africa at the bottom. Uh, can you find Britain? Right at the bottom. Yeah, exactly. Thank you. Right, right down the bottom, bottom left. Um, I'll leave it to you for any other features. But what, what is what is it about the world that this, these cartographers are trying to get across? What's the most important thing? God. Sorry. God. God. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. This is a Christian world, and this is what I wanted to start off. Uh, that, is, that is broadly the outline. This is called a TO map, and that is basically what they all look like. Okay. Um, and as you say, the main thing about them is, is God. Uh, God literally has the whole world in his hand. Okay. Uh, the Edstorff map, which somebody's got, there's a little head at the top and hands on the side and feet at the bottom. What, one of the things we're trying to get across here is that the whole world ought to be Christian. Okay, This is everybody, all the peoples, including all the people you might have on the edges of the map who have dog's heads or one enormous foot or a, an eyes in their stomach. None of that matters. So they are all potential Christians. And there is nothing to say about any of them once they've been converted. So they're much sort of about conversion. Um, And what I wanted to contrast here, this is an early model map from about 200 years later than the ones that you're looking at. And in this, you notice the world is not all joined up, and there is no God, there's no Christ. What you have in Europe is now somebody dressed in classical clothes, but a sense of that as a Christian world. The other two were in Islamic dress. But by this point, there is a division of the world, that Europe is now Christian, and the other parts of the world are not. So there's a very different sense of the sphere and how the sphere is going to be divided up. Um, but back to, back, back to this medieval one, and because this is the one that I know most about. And this is the Hereford map of Mundi from about 1300, very famous. I spent much of yesterday with the facsimile of it, which is about this big. Enjoying it. Some of the photos are probably are. So the second thing I want to say about this is that, as I say, it's, it's a history lesson, okay? And that's how it talks about itself. 
this is a little message that the person who made the map left us at the bottom, and it says, please will everybody who can read, who can read or see or hear this history and estory. history because it's covered in things that happened a long time ago. Uh, you might be able to see on some of them, you can see Noah's Ark. Um, on some of them, you can see Adam and Eve and Paradise. You can usually see the crucifixion happening in Jerusalem. So, so there are lots of things happening in this kind of way. Uh, there indeed is what's happening in the East. This is Adam and Eve. <coughs> thrown out of paradise. Okay. So there's this very concrete representation of things that happened a long time ago. Um, but it's not so much as a sort of document of events from the past that I want you to think about it. It's more... It's more this way in which it's a kind of theory of history, because the history in this way starts in the East starts in paradise with the origins of humanity. And it's following the course of the sun. So it is heading towards the west. And that this means that if you live in Britain, which as you say is right down here, then you are in, in essentially what the Australian Prime Minister once called the arse end of the world. <laughs> and not only that, you were also in the arse end of time. You see what I mean? You are living in the last days. You are living at the end of the world. What do you do if you're living at the end of the world? I mean, Western Europe is quite a long way off, but Britain is even separated from that. It's really cut off into the ocean. What do you do? Well, you go home. And home is Jerusalem. Home has to be Jerusalem. So there's something about these maps. I said they they, what they want is a Christian world. So a crusade is part of that. If you go on a crusade, then you are helping history to finish, if you see what I mean. You're helping history to come to the point that God wants it to come to, in which the whole world will be Christian. If you go on a pilgrimage yourself, then you are coming home. People talk about the fact that in medieval travel writing, which is mainly pilgrimage writing, people talk about going, but they don't talk about coming back. And it's traditional in travel writing that you talk about coming home. And you think, well, with a pilgrimage, you are home. You are now where God wanted you to be. You are where you should be. So why would you talk about leaving? You know, <laughs> why would you go back into exile at that point? Um, sorry. And I wanted to sort of link this up to the way that people write history at this time. Up until about the 11th century, up until about the time of the Norman Conquest, when everything changes across Europe in the 11th century. But up until then, this is what you get in terms of history writing. These are the Annals of St. Gall, a monastery from the 8th century. And it reads rather like one of those diaries, I think, you keep when you're a child, when you say, you know, Tuesday nothing happened, Wednesday did homework, Thursday nothing happened. <laughs> um, <laughs> There are a whole series of things that there's not very much information there to go on, and you do find yourself wondering, well, what, well why did they, why did they do this? You can get a picture of a world of enormous <laughs> scarcity, I think, but nothing. You know, this is a world that is just about staying alive. But, but, but why would you bother? And the historians have pointed out that what, what that is really is it's a clock. That the work that's being done there is counting. You are counting the years of the Lord that this is working towards the end of time, and that that is your job as a historian, is to keep the count, keep the clock ticking. Because we're all heading for the West, we're heading for sunset, we're heading for death, we're heading for the, the end of time, in other words. Now, what interests me then, in the context of this evening, is that in the 11th century, it changes. The way that people write history changes, and they start writing history as family history. Okay? 
They start writing a history which is about generations. They start writing genealogies. They start writing about parent to child. And to some extent, we're still doing that. I mean, when we think about kings, when we think about someone to the first, someone to the second, so, you know, we, we, we think of, this, of history as a matter of generations. And that that really is not the way that they think about it before that. And one of the things that I would be really interested to hear from you is what is at stake once you start thinking about history as family history, once you start thinking about it as generations and not, not as a clock in this kind of way. So the, and, and here are some sort of various ideas that I wanted to, to throw out to you, but I would also interested in coming back. Um, so, so, so one of the, st the story that dominates these family histories is the story of Troy, okay, the Trojan War. And in the Trojan War, all Europeans are Trojans. They are not Greeks. We don't, we, we Europeans don't become Greeks until the 18th century, when there is no Greece, essentially, to, 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 it's just a fantasy world. But before then, we are all Trojans. And all of these family stories are about how we begin in Troy and we move from Troy west, which we often do in various stages. And this, which I am going to read some of, although it's very long, uh, this is the Grande Chronique de France. This is the official history of France in the 15th century. 404 years before Rome was founded, Priam reigned in Great Troy. He sent Paris, his eldest son, to Greece to carry off the Queen Helen, wife to King Menelaus, in revenge for a dishonor that the Greeks had formerly done to him. The Greeks, who were very angry about this, stirred themselves and came to besiege Troy. At this siege, which lasted ten years, were killed all the sons of King Priam and Queen Hecuba, his wife. The city was burned and destroyed. Uh, the people and the nobles killed, but some escaped this plague, including several princes of the city were dispersed to several parts of the world in search of new habitations. And this is where everybody had come to. Aeneas, the most famous, uh, who was one of the great princes of Troy, set to sea with 4,400 Trojans. He arrived at Carthage after suffering great peril and great torment at sea. He stayed for a while with Dido, queen of that city, and then he left and arrived in Italy, which was distressed unto him by fate, according to the stories of Ovid. Uh, he conquered the land and he reigned for three years afterwards. After his death, his son Ascanius married Lavinia, daughter of King Martinus. He had a son by this lady who was called Silvius. When he was fully grown, he hung around his mother's chambers so long that he got one of the mates pregnant. One of her nieces pregnant and engendered Brutus. So it's, it's strange if you, to see how familiar in a way this way of writing history is to matter of generations, but it's a very odd thing. And this carries on, this is the foundation of Britain. This Brutus later led the lineage of Lo, whom we've already mentioned, into the island of Albion, which is now called England, along with Corineus, who was descended from the lineage of Antimor. When they'd taken this island, which at the time was inhabited by giants, um, <laughs> Corineus had as his share a region of the land which is still called Cornwall because of his name. The rest of the land, which Brutus kept for himself, was similarly called after him, Britain. Uh, and then he founded a city, just the same as the Great Troy, and he called it Trivovac, which means New Troy. And from this Brutus descended all the kings who came after him in the land until the time when the Angles, who came from one of the countries of Saxony, which was called Angle, took the land, and because of them it is called Angle Land, England, on the table. <coughs> so, um, one of the, one of those, this, this sort of leads me in various directions. I mean, one point to make about this is that Europeans are Asians. They come from Asia, they have an Asian identity. And that a lot of the things that we now would call Orientalism, that we would think of as attached particularly to Islam or to other sort of areas of the East, actually start off as the classical Trojan roots of European identity. Okay. Uh, it's only afterwards that they get transferred to Islam by association, but they start off as, as us. That is where they begin. Um, oh, yeah. Sorry, this is a picture of Troy. That is, is Troy on the other side, uh, in Asia, with a rather sad flag hanging out of it for reasons that I'm not entirely clear. Um, another point about it is that 
Identity is not native. The stories that they tell themselves are about coming from somewhere else. And although we tend to think of identity often now as about roots, when you hear people in various parts of the world talking, they say, our country has always been ours, we have always been here. That's not the model that they're using at this period. On the contrary, authority over the land is established by coming from somewhere else, conquering, and when you conquer, you bring cities, you bring agriculture, you bring technology. Now, it's been pointed out that this is a very powerful way of thinking about authority in the West. And indeed, the, the main book on this subject is called From Virgin to Vietnam. And I'm sure you could push it more recently than Vietnam. The idea that to come somewhere, to conquer, and to civilize, to civilize with technology, that that is the great Western mission. Um, is that this is, these are not just stories about continuity. And so far as they're stories about family history, they're stories about the transmission from parent to child, but they're also stories about change. Because once you start thinking of history as family history, once you start saying, well, what happened to Sylvius? What happened to that child? What kind of life did he lead? You're also talking about change, and that, that is something that comes in very powerfully. Um, and this is, uh, this is in fact translated into French uh, text again on the subject. This is about London. Until his time, which is a time long after, Londres, London, was named Trinovant, this is in Troy. But it was renamed Kaya Lod, from Lod, who honoured it greatly and spent a lot of time there. And then foreign people came who didn't speak the language and they called it Londrum for Lod. And then the Angles and the Saxons who re-corrupted the name called Londuan Lundena, and they used Lundena for a long time. And then the Normans and the French came along and along, who didn't know how to speak English, didn't know how to pronounce Londena, so they pronounced it as best they could and called Londena Londre, and thus they kept the pronunciation. So you know, the whole tracing of continuity is all full of the bits that have gone. It's all about tracing the things that have not survived. Uh, rather like Darwin talks about evolution as being the history of extinction. You know, this is all about the extinct. Um, and one of the things that, again, that I wanted to pick up in this is uh, that some of this is, well, as you've seen in that, is about language and about the ways in which languages change. Uh, on the Hereford map, most of it is in Latin. The bits that are talking about Christianity, about empire, about God, about eternity, and about the plan for eternity, providence, they're all done in Latin. Uh, but some bits are done in French. This is the Virgin Mary, uh, with bearing her breasts and saying to her son, look, my son, these are the breasts that gave you such. This is your humanity. When the map maker talks about himself, he writes it in French. And it's as if there's something about language, that, about vernacular languages, that is very poignant because they change. Because you know that in 300 years' time, people won't understand. They won't know what's going on. So it's a way of sort of putting you into the present, the present moment, and into the stream of history in a way that Latin, Latin can't do. That's all about eternity. And I wanted to finish really with a couple of points, just saying this is this is the touched up version of the Hereford map. This is normally what we think the colouring would look like. And this I think gives you a rather different sense of what's going on in this, because so much of it is about rivers. And so much of it is about rivers do not necessarily go, go from east to west. They don't follow the huge design of universal history. They go most of it's going north to south. And there seems to be an element here about a sort of tension between a history which is all about getting to where God wanted us to be, universal Christianity, and then a human history, which is all about dead ends. It is all about people going backwards and forwards. There's a rather nice tracing on here somewhere of the path taken by the children of Israel from the Red Sea, where they, they go round in a knot so many times before they end up where they're supposed to be. And I just wanted to end with this thought, really, that um, this is a, an example of a genealogy role, which again goes very much with this way of thinking about history as family history. And we tend to talk about these as family trees, but it seems to me that in a lot of ways this looks much more like a mythology. 
and that there is an endless interest in the bits that don't go anywhere, the tributaries, the end of the sort of um, directions. So it was this, this tension between things, and the way in which family history really changes the way that people think about history, the first that I want to speak with. Speeches had to range from 
speech that was like a raging torrent and speech that was like a peaceful, quiet river that lulls the listeners. And the good speech managed to moderate itself in between those extremes while indicating where it could go, what kind of river it could be. And rivers were also really central to the ways that kings represented themselves in this period. So working in the 17th century, I'm chiefly interested in Louis XIV. And this is the crossing of Louis XIV's troops, of the of crossing of the Rhine in 1672. You can see how the horses are dipping down into the water here. This is a detail from the frieze of the Port Saint-Denis, that big triumphal arch that's in the bit of uh, northern Paris near the Gare du Nord, where there are lots of Indian restaurants. This is right in the middle of it, looking like the Arc de Triomphe, but the 17th century version. So Louis was really, really keen on representations of his extraordinary crossing of the river, obviously increasing his kingdom um, in so doing. But lots of um, critics or satirical commentators of the time talked about the fact that though Louis could cross rivers and do extraordinary things, he couldn't make the fountains at Versailles smell any good at all, since they basically <laughs> came from shit-laden streams uh, <laughs> near Paris. But the biggest metaphor for thinking about rivers in this period follows on from what Jane's been talking about. So rivers were used as a way to think about origins and mobility, cont continuity and change. There's a real obsession in this period with the sources of the river, especially the source of the Nile, but sources of French rivers too. But interestingly, you could also fake the source of a river in your own backyard, if you had a backyard big enough. This is from Salomon Kaus, a Huguenot um, water wrangler who actually came to England in the early 17th century, worked for Charles I. And he demonstrates in his uh, book on hydraulics how you can have extraordinary water effects in your own landscaping. So this is a source of a river, a design for a source of the river that you, you can go home and make. I'd like to see pictures of them. Um, so you can fake a source. But in the 16th century, going back a little bit, this idea of the source of the river becomes really central to the genealogical idea of the nation, the idea of the nation as a family. Because for both rivers and nations, this question of the source, the nobility and lineage of river and of nation is really paramount. So early 16th century treatises on rivers often make a case for France's rivers being noble, often uh, talking about France's rivers as, as a part of this important Trojan history. And they demonstrate, these treatises claim, that France has river, rivers more noble than anywhere else in Europe, and trying to therefore to establish the kind of purity and nobility of France itself. I thought about this recently. I live near Clissold Park in North London, which is a kind of rapidly gentrifying area. And I heard a small boy say to his brother the other day, I am not a coward, I have swum in a French river. <laughs> he was indicating something about his own nobility in so doing, I think. But in this period, genealogists function a little bit like geographers, and they take a great pain to establish the source of the rivers that they talk about. So they discuss the sources of the rivers and then the sources of the noble households that live along the rivers, that inhabit their banks. So in this kind of writing, it's often hard to work out which makes France better, her great rivers or her great families that live along the rivers. And the important thing is that France's noble rivers and families are better than Italy's noble rivers and families. Italy has tempestuous rivers that are kind of unnoble, whereas France is a peaceful, fine, and gracious. <laughs> in the 17th century, another version of this has the river no longer as... Um, as a sort of genealogy thing, but the figure of the perfect ambassador. This is Le Moine, a Jesuit, who says, rivers belong to countries just as mountains do. This is a little emblem where you have a poem and a picture. Rivers belong to countries just as mountains do, but rivers are less attached to home than mountains are, and they do honor by their country in traveling. Rivers are free and disinterested mediators. They make lines of communication between the most distant parts of the earth and rivers give without regret and without reserve. I'm not sure if that would have been comforting to the people of the Somerset levels. 
But so rivers allowed people to think about continuity and change. And one of the ways that people thought about that was, again, this question of the French language, something that the French have obviously been obsessed for by, uh, by the centuries. So in the 17th century, the, the French language is often compared to a river, something that changes even though it always has the same banks, this, this river as the figure of continuity and change. One of the things that interests me in my project, I had a series of rivers, perhaps like the Boy in Clissold Park, I'm doing them one by one. So my rivers are the Loire, the Seine, and then going into France's colonial possessions, I'm interested in the Saint Laurent, the Saint Lawrence River, uh, the Senegal River, so the river that was so important to the establishing of the slave trade, and the Mississippi. So that takes us from the 16th to the early 18th century. And one of the things I'm really interested in, in thinking about these rivers, is the tension between a river that's seen as a cartographic whole, something that you could really track the whole mapping of and think about in relation to your world empires, and the river as a local experience. So these two maps show basically uh, the Saint Laurent and then the Mississippi as courses through particular areas. This is Canada, New France, and then going down to the French territories that ran right the way down to Louisiana, the Gulf of Mexico. So the map, you can't see it very clearly here, but will show how those rivers carve up that territory, how they're imagined as um, sort of great throughways for Frenchness. But as rivers, as maps and exploring really gets established in this period, you, you see that the maps become more and more interested in tracking not this kind of glorious whole, but the local experience, what, how small rivers connect the big rivers together, how local practices um, establish themselves, or the kind of local practices they were observing with the Amerindians who used uh, portages that are carrying their canoes across particular areas, and you start to see these kinds of annotations on maps that show you how people use the, the sort of borderlands between the wet and the dry. Um, when the French explore these New World rivers, they get quite literally bogged down in that sort of distinction between the large project that they want to accomplish and this local experience of the rivers. So they're really interested in finding passages through, at first, to the Pacific. They think that the Mississippi is going to run the other way and they're going to get to the Pacific. You also sometimes see stories about these rivers running to the Red Sea, which makes the whole map kind of fall in on itself. One of the passages I really love from one of my Jesuits who's on these river expeditions, he says, the tribes that seized us gave us no time to sail up and down the river. <laughs> As though he has a kind of a, a cruise desire that, that just, <laughs> these people kind of get in the way of it. One of my favorite observers or really uh, active participants in these explorations is a really fascinating Italian figure, Tonti, who was a mercenary who worked for the French. He had a hook for a hand and he wrote with his other hand some really, really amazing journals. And he describes the Native Americans as being something like water. One of the things that the French are really concerned to do is get the Native Americans to sit down and stay in one place where they can be converted. But instead, the Native Americans are in continuous mobility, he says, that they move as though they are water. And they're moving continually on the water and between water and the land. And one of the things that particularly strikes the French as they come down towards the Mississippi Delta is this living of finding a way to live in between the water and the land. So they observe that um, the indigenous people build kind of rafts out into the delta. I think that he's often talking about mangroves, for example, but ways in which people find spaces to live in between water and land. And that's something very surprising to the French who have a very clear distinction um, between those two things. So I want to come back now, alas, from the Mississippi Delta to Bloomsbury and uh, I'm going to give you some ideas just to start scribbling on the tablecloth. But first we're going to hear from Nick, and then, then we'll drink and scribble. But these are my ideas. I'd like you to draw your own family river on the tablecloth, so somebody can just determine the course of your river over the tablecloth. Um, I want you to name your river, so you can name it with the name of a river that you know, that you, you feel your family represents or is represented by, um, or you can make up another name. Um, I want you to tell me whether it's a noble river or if it's a kind of tempestuous peasant river, if your river tells a different story. 
Um, and I want you to draw on it, as the French did on maps, the local practices around your river. So perhaps your earliest memories as a child of river interaction, swimming, paddling, gazing at the water. And I want you to think about how you think about rivers now, what kinds of activities you do in, around, on, uh, away from rivers. Um, and I also want you to think a little bit about our political investment in rivers today. So chiefly what I'm interested in in my project is the kind of politics that arises from thinking about rivers, how rivers allow us to think about political projects like uh, colonial projects. So we could think a little bit perhaps about how, oh, that's actually going to be a question, how our own political relation to rivers differs, or does it, from this kind of mythical investment in the river's source that we see in early modern Europe. So, rivers, river management, and your own river memories. Thank you. Thank you very much, and I invite Nick to take a thought. Thank you very much. I have about 10 minutes to talk to you about roots. If this was an episode of BGPQR, 10 minutes would be more than enough to get your family tree back to about 1890. <laughs> We're led to believe that it's very easy, you can do it online, and it's a simple mechanical process. What I want to do is to explore actually what it means to look into your background. We've heard a lot of talk about the flow of history and the fact that the medieval version of the history is flowing forward almost to the end of days. And we've also heard about how aggregated genealogies can be used to reinforce national myths and identities, usually through a key noble idea of monarchy or royal families. But in many ways, when we start looking at our background, when we start looking at our genealogies, we're turning our back to the present and the future and looking into the past. There's this almost compulsion to try and find out how far back you can go. With modern genealogy, it's about gathering names. It's going online and seeing how many tens of thousands of people you can connect to. With a sort of stamp collecting with people from the past. Yet actually, what the programme has shown us is that it's far more personal. It's far more important that we understand our background. And I want to throw some ideas out tonight about how it actually has practical use, rather than, as we're encouraged to believe by the early reviewers of who do you think you are, it's nothing more than self-indulgent navel-gazing. And in many ways, this goes back to some of the stories we've already heard about reinforcing not just a national identity, but when genealogy really made it big in the 16th century, there were real political and financial benefits for tracing one's roots. This was the period when you started to get heraldry, and the heralds could go around and visit local areas, because people were drawing up family trees trying to claim that they were descended from lesser branches of the aristocrats, those lost tributaries of the rivers that had meandered off the main course, so that they could take up their rightful place or station in society. So genealogy has always had a sense of one-upmanship about it. It's most ancient of arts, trying to show that you were someone of note, just like Boris Johnson has done with his own genealogy of who do you think you are, showing he's an illegitimate descendant of George II, so again, going back into that national <laughs> royal story. So if he can't make it as PM, he can always take a claim to the throne. <laughs> but the whole idea that this is something that you do when you perhaps retire, or it's not really that important, I really want to challenge. Because in many ways it touches upon all of us. The glib title, who do you think you are, actually is very important. Because different societies and different cultures have different ways of capturing memory, both family, tribal or local, or cultural and national. And in many ways, we in the West have almost forgotten our place in history. It can be very difficult, if you haven't done any genealogy, to go back. And again, when you're putting your rivers down on the table, perhaps spare a little bit of space, and probably not that much, to try and work out who you are, who you're related to, from scratch. Name parents, grandparents, Great-grandparents, each time you double up the number of people, how many of you can go back more than three or four generations apart from the table of professional <laughs> genealogists who have turned up and might in your midst and don't go and ask them for any help? <laughs> but it is quite difficult when you think about it because when you're reconstructing someone, you work with very basic data. A name, possibly dates of birth, maybe marriage, but it's that 
background information was so interesting. What were they like? What did they do? Where did they do it? All of these are important clues which all add together, they aggregate to tell us who we are. And there are some fascinating uses of modern genealogy today, many of which have got nothing to do with building a family tree with tens of thousands of names upon it. I want to give you a few examples that perhaps you might like to think about and see how it might apply to you, or your family, or your community. And the first is at a very sort of local level, and it's about how we inspire a younger generation to look at the world around them. Genealogy doesn't have to involve lots of research. It can be some very simple questions. And in many ways, it's the most inclusive and inquisitive form of understanding the world around us. Who am I? Why am I here? Where am I from? These are questions that can be answered by talking to older family members. And let's face it, to a child in primary school, we're all ancients. We've lived through all sorts of strange things. Many primary school, well, most primary school children weren't alive when 9-11 took place. So the modern world as we see it, Anything before that is ancient history. And so we can actually spark an interest in where they've come from. And this is a great way to get different cultures to interact, particularly if they've followed rivers or seas from different parts of the world to where we live today. And there have been some great projects that have captured this passion, this detective process, and put it to really good use. There's been a project called Making History to put together groups of school kids from different parts of the country from different backgrounds and see what stories start to emerge. And one group came from Hackney, and it was quite a poor area, but there was a lot of different ethnic backgrounds. And one particular group were researching their Afro-Caribbean ancestry. And with a bit of help, and a lot of research, and asking lots of family members, they established various generational traits. That if you go back two generations, people are willing to talk. If you go up one generation, there's almost this lack of information, this lack of curiosity. So you almost have to jump back two generations each time. Which got many of the kids talking to people who were still in the Caribbean, who had actually inherited this oral history. They knew their roots because they hadn't moved around. They could actually trace it back into the 19th century. And through this technique, through oral history, we worked out there was a very strong connection to the slave history associated with the islands. So quite a dark part of Britain's past. And so there was a strong slavery story that came to the surface in this group from Hackney. We also worked with a group from Lincolnshire. White, middle class, very different story. And we looked at some of their ancestry. You might be able to tell where this is going. And we found someone whose ancestors owned a plantation in the West Indies. The same island as the child we found in Hackney. In fact, they turned out to have owned the plantation of the slaves. So we actually had two kids who were connected over several hundred years. Now normally, if you had this in a sort of adult computational situation, it would be quite tricky to talk about one's roots. But we put the two kids together, with the right of course, <laughs> and they were just, oh right, so your ancestor owned my ancestor, how cool is that? What was it like? And he had this really natural conversation about ethno-ancestry and slavery, but conducted at a very neutral level. Two kids curious about their roots who were able to understand that they shared a bond and then tease out some of the stories behind it and those rivers flowing through time to where they are today. So we got them thinking about history and what it meant to them. And they used this in different ways and cultural ways, not just to learn about the history of the period, but to understand their identity. And we track this through a whole range of groups through this project. It's fantastic to see the stories that came out. And it unlocked their creativity. Many of the kids are quite bored by the traditional learning rules at school. But by doing a little bit of light touch identity research, they suddenly put a little bit of themselves into all aspects of work. And this works at a community level as well. We were working with a group from the Isle of Wight, the Wight Social Heritage Group. And they had a problem with some of the older kids in their community. They would go around and hang about the cemetery and vandalise it and it was nowhere else to go, nothing else to do. And they were really concerned that they were losing this piece of their heritage. So they put a small funding group together, and they raised enough money to start to capture the information from these headstones. And they used the money to also put them online as a resource. And then, behold, people started coming to ride on the Isle of Wight, not during the summer season, when it's all nice and sunny, during the cold winter months, because for the first time they could work out 
where their ancestors had ended up. People were coming from all around the world, following the routes, following this flow of information to a single destination, the last resting place of their ancestors that they never knew about. And so suddenly, the local council woke up and thought, this is really quite amazing. This is actually a form of tourism. This is bringing people to the Isle of Wight to look at the resting place of dead people. So it's a form of ancestral tourism. And on the basis of this, they got some more money, not just to protect the gravestones, but actually to reconstruct and restore two chapels. And they gave one of these to the local history, where they set up the museum and the display. And the other one they used as a graveyard classroom. So they brought the local kids into this area and taught them about the local history and got them to talk to their parents and grandparents and go out and do some wonderful work about oral history capture and getting a sense of the local history. But also teach a whole range of other skills using historic documents to look at numeracy or literacy, to go out around the graveyard and do nature trails. It brought the whole curriculum to life. And in a very short space of time, no more than five years, the graveyard was seen not as somewhere to hang out and smoke and drink and break things, but actually as a source of inspiration. People took pride in this local community resource. And the volunteers who started off as about 10 people no longer had to walk through the streets of Rhine in fear of their lives, local youth looming up ready to mug them. Actually, the local youth were looming up saying, I've found some more information for you. Can you put it in your graveyard classroom? So it showed there's a real practical value for understanding how your story links into the community story and how that story actually echoes around the world. There's now a thriving ancestral tourism business on the Isle of Wight based around the work in this classroom. With the added bonus, the people now treasure these local resources and the community feels much more interlocked. But there are also other practical uses. Perhaps people who come to a crossroads in their lives or face a very difficult situation need to draw inspiration from somewhere else to make the right choice actually empower themselves to unlock a skill set or take a completely new direction. And there's been work done in prisons where inmates have been given a choice of a vocational course or a family history course. And those who've taken the family history route, there's virtually a 0% reoffending. And the reason why is that they found an inspirational character that they wanted to emulate. Someone who perhaps had a certain skill set, carpenter, painter, decorated music, musician, or someone who had made a choice in their lives that led them to a different place, showing them that where they were now didn't have to be repeated. And also looking at how future generations might see them, the person who turned their life around, or the person who made a mistake. And it empowered them to actually go back into the world and start fresh. So genealogy isn't just one hour of research to find out if you're related to a member of the royal family. It's far more important than that, it's far deeper than that. It is a journey, it's a journey of discovery, a physical journey to visit some of the places that perhaps we have affinity to, a journey of discovery into how we play a role in our local society or community, and certainly a journey of discovery into how we interact with our family members. And for those of you who haven't done any genealogy, and I'll be really intrigued when we actually move to the questions and answers, and certainly many glasses of wine. How far back do you actually get? Because if you've got the chance to talk to somebody, if you've got the chance to actually capture your family history now, don't leave it until there's no one else to talk to. Do it now. Make them part of your story. Make your story something you can pass on to the next generation. These rivers through time need to flow forwards into the future as well as just backwards into the past. Thank you very much. Thank you.